Can you just click on proclaim? Now we just... Okay, now it's working. All right, thank you. Uh, what, what do you do when you are celebrating a victory? Uh, when the time comes, when something's happened, maybe you won the, maybe you won the final. Sorry, Carmen. Um, <laughs> if you had won the final, what would you have done? How would you celebrate the victory? Party, Party. yeah. Any ideas, kids? How do you celebrate when you win? High fives, yeah? It's a good idea. Parties, high fives, a little bit of a, a victory dance maybe. Well, uh, in our story, in our passage today, what we're looking at is we're looking at uh, what Deborah and Barak did when they won the victory, then they won the battle under God's hand. They wrote a song. That's how they celebrated. They wrote a song and sang it. And there's a bit of a pattern of that happening in a few places across the Bible. Maybe one of the ones we know well is uh, Moses. After the people of Israel came through the Red Sea, he wrote a song and they sang it. And, um, and Miriam wrote a bit of a chorus to go with it. And they danced around with their tambourines and celebrated God's deliverance. Today, we're looking at the song of Deborah and Barak as they celebrate God's victory. And the poetry, even though in some respects this is a retelling of what happened in the previous chapter, there is a sense of the, the poetic retelling brings some other things to the fore. And yeah, it, it highlights different things. It won't just be the same as reading the previous chapter. And there's actually a few details that we get in the song that we don't get in the narrative. So we'll pick those up as we move along. We're going to just dive into it, work our way through it piece by piece but one of the things that the themes that we're going to see popping up across the chapter is that the characters of the story are judged by Deborah in the sense that um, Deborah and Barak in brackets um, is making judgment calls or, or, or making um, she's saying something about the characters that show up and either kind of holding them up as positive examples or negative examples. And the thing that makes that divide is whether or not you are loyal to the Lord. That's the basis of which um, Deborah says, great or not great. So let's work through the song and highlight those important elements as we go. The first element that we will see is that the Lord is praised. The Lord is praised. I wonder what, what, if, you, if you think about praising somebody, what are the kinds of things we praise in a person? Usually, we are either praising them for something that they are, that they didn't necessarily do for themselves, but they, but they just are, or we praise somebody for things that they have done or achieved, accomplished. You know, if somebody's beautiful, you can praise their beauty, but that's something that they didn't make. God gave them their beauty, but we can still praise beauty. But often we will end up uh, praising people for what they've done or accomplished or you know, whatever. In the case of God, we can praise Him on both fronts. We can praise Him because He is beautiful, because of who He is, because of His nature, His character. But we can also praise Him because of how that's worked out and what He does, what He has accomplished, what He has won. 
And that's what happens in this passage. Deborah and Barak, and mostly Deborah, turn to praise God after their victory, writing their song, praising God for who he is and what he has done. It starts in these first verses, uh, Judges 5, 1 and 2. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes of Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Now, we re- you might remember, if you missed out last week, I'll catch you up real quick. Deborah was a prophetess who was judging in Israel. They didn't have kings at that time or any kind of nationwide civil government. They didn't have procedures for how you became a civil leader. And so instead, across the pages of Judges, between the death of Joshua and the eventual rise of David, what we have is this kind of these periodic kind of leaders pop up in different places across the country. And they usually come and provide uh, military deliverance. Uh, And then they usually then are also trusted to be some kind of civil leader. They will have some position or power influence in a certain area. And Deborah has arisen as one who has a certain level of leadership and influence in her area. And I made the case that that was on the basis of the fact that she was speaking the words of God as a prophetess and she became a trusted voice in a, in a place, and she was a faithful voice in an area that was lacking faithfulness. So, there was a lack of leadership in Israel, and we touched on this as well, and Barak, em, uh, he em, em amplified this, like he was the example of this. He demonstrated reticence to obey God. But here's the thing, even though he demonstrated an early reticence, he did obey. Even though initially he was slow to act, he did go, he did go through with it. He did end up being used by the mighty hand of God. And although he started withholding his obedience, he repented of it and he was faithfully uh, used by God. And so when we have realized that we're withholding obedience, the path forward is like Barak to stop withholding obedience and to faithfully, to listen to what God said and faithfully obey. And in this song, we see that, the, that Barak's initial uh, uh, faithlessness is not even remembered. They don't even talk about it. It's just, it's kind of gone. We've, we've moved past that. Instead, we're talking about how great the leaders were. They did step up. It, they did deliver. They came forward. They offered themselves willingly. And that is great news. Now, here we have Deborah singing. And in this, in this passage, uh, the, the verb for singing, well, then I can't remember if it was a verb or a noun, but anyway, the word sing here in the original Hebrew is in the feminine. And so what this is saying is that it's Deborah doing the singing here. And so even though Barak is mentioned as it's kind of the song of Deborah and Barak, it's really mostly the song of Deborah. So here we have Deborah singing and Deborah saying, I will praise the Lord, making melody to him. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. So Deborah is singing, praising the Lord, making melody to Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is a pattern that God's people have down through the ages, a pattern for us to follow as well, of 
of breaking into song, writing songs to the Lord, praising Him. And we have no reason to stop writing songs to the Lord, about the Lord, to teach us one another, you know, admonish one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You know, true worship is transformative. It teaches, it reminds, it humbles us. It ascribes appropriate worth to God. It declares God's victory to the world. And so the Lord is praised then, the Lord should be praised now, and the Lord will forever be praised as the angels sing continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But the next thing we see is that the Lord's march brings godly confidence. The Lord's march brings godly confidence. So Deborah is kind of given a bit of a a call to worship, so to speak, and now she turns to give us the heavenly perspective of what is happening on the ground or what is happening with relation to this battle. What did God do that brought the victory? Well, if you look in verses 4 and 5, you see, when you, Lord, went out from Seir, you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. So the Lord is their covenant Lord, Yahweh, who has come to save them. They, they had fallen into, uh, they'd fallen into, what's the word for it? They'd, they'd been rebelling against God. They'd gone after other religions, serving the Baals and the Asherah. But here, who's the one who's coming to save them? It's not the Baals. It's not the Asherah. Here is their covenant Lord who led them out of Egypt, the one who met them at Sinai, the one who entered into a covenant with them at Sinai. He was the one that they, they kind of saw, so to speak, in the clouds and the thunder on the top of the mountain, and they heard his voice. This is the God. This is the one who is coming from Sinai, the one of Sinai. He's coming up from the south through Edom. So through, there's Mount Seir in Edom. So the Lord is marching up from that place. I don't think you're meant to literally think that God was, he lives on Mount Sinai and he had to leave his house in order to come up and save Israel. But we're painting this poetic picture here of how God is acting, that their God, the one who loves them and chose them, is coming to their aid. He's on the warpath, marching up to give them victory. And so the, the mountains quake as the Lord comes. And it's... <laughs> I, I was thinking it's almost like the clouds are terrified, so terrified they wet their pants. The, the clouds let go of their water as the Lord comes. And so the, the Lord comes bringing rain. That's interesting because Baal is the storm god, and yet it is the Lord God, and his, he comes that the rain comes. This knowledge that God is on the march is confidence-inspiring for God's people. Although we can't see God physically marching and moving, He is on the move and creation bows to Him. And we can have great confidence and to live loyal and faithfully before Him, even as we face battles. Even like Israel faced the terrifying horde of chariots from the enemies, from Hazor and Sisera's army. God's people can live confidently and faithfully. They can wade into battle because they know that God is on the march. God is at work. 
There's a great passage from Jeremiah where uh, Jeremiah is kind of bemoaning the state of affairs. He is absolutely hated by so many people. He's been thrown in prison. I'm pretty sure this is after he's been thrown in prison and he's been in, in the stocks for a night and been beaten by another prophet because of him sharing God's word. And yet he consoles himself with this. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. Jeremiah takes comfort that God is at work. God is the one who is on his side. He just has to keep faithfully proclaiming the truth. Even if nobody ever hears him, he has to keep going. And he takes comfort in the Lord. Now, a little word here. We hear this talk about God overthrowing his enemies, God casting down his enemies. In a little bit, there's going to be a curse against the enemies of God's people. And then people go, well, hang on a sec. In the New Testament, it says we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But if we just think about that phrase in the New Testament, love your enemies, in order to love enemies, you have to have enemies. So love your enemies doesn't mean that we don't have enemies, but it it means that the way that we treat them, the way that we respond to them is with love and we pray for them. And we still, though, hope that God wins. We still hope that God's people are vindicated. We still hope that at the end of the day, that those people will see God's victory and we can hope and pray that they will have a demise in this earthly life and perhaps be brought to repentance before they face their demise in the life hereafter. So we can pray for the downfall of God's enemies, which is our enemies, but with, an, uh, with a hope and still having a desire that they too might come to know the Lord. God's march brings godly confidence that he will win, his enemies will be overcome, and that his people will be saved. Next, we see that the Lord's people are in a woeful state. The Lord's people are in a woeful state. So, yes, God's on the march. That's great. But now Deborah goes, let's have a look at the state of affairs in Israel before God came up to save us. What was it like? The unfortunate reality is that they were in pretty bad shape. They needed God to come to their aid. And this fits into that pattern of the judge's cycle. They wander away from loyalty to God and they end up in a bad way. And here Deborah highlights some of the issues. Chapter 5. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, the travellers took to winding paths, villages in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. You remember Shamgar was the one-verse judge prior to the story of Deborah. He killed 600 Philistines or 500 Philistines with a cattle prod, an ox goad. And even though Shamgar was out and about, it seems, even though this terrifying warrior was was around Israel, it still wasn't a very safe place to be. Despite the fact that Shamgar was there, in these days of Jael... It was not safe to be on the road. There would have been highway, the bands of highwaymen robbing. 
I think we probably take for granted the fact that we can just hop on the motorway and just head you know, straight to Melbourne. But imagine this, that situation being today, then there would be people creating roadblocks and trying to jump you and steal your car, steal your stuff on the way to Melbourne. And so in order to make sure you didn't run into them, you have to go up through Dargo and down the back through Bright and around to get to Melbourne. Like They've got to go the back way in order to try and stay safe. We take for granted things like um, our shipping lanes and whatever around the world. They're kept safe by the, the force of um, some of the, the great navies around the world that kind of keep peace on the seas. But when that kind of, that, uh, that military might, when that force is withdrawn, then piracy takes place. And that's what's happening in Israel. It's not safe to be on the road because you don't know if you're going to get jumped. And it, it was unsafe to be out and about in the nation. It was like the whole country had turned into a bad neighbourhood. The regular people of Israel felt powerless to do anything. They kept to themselves. They were afraid and dispersed and disconnected. The villagers wouldn't fight. They're just the regular people. They didn't want to... They couldn't, they couldn't go out. And they would have asked themselves... Even if they did have a little bit of guts and courage, you would have said, what can I as one person do against such a dreadful state in our country, the, the, the way things are? And that was until Deborah arose. That wonderful woman of faith came up as a mother to their nation. She was a tool that God used for their deliverance, an antidote to the woes that they were facing. Now, a brief comment on something that I was talking about last week, and that was the idea of um, Deborah as an indictment against her nation. I think I may not have clearly communicated that an indictment can be a good thing. So, in terms of law, right, if you have a criminal, you bring indictment against the criminal, you're alleging that they did the wrong thing, and then a case is brought. And so... Talking about Deborah as an indictment on, the, on Israel wasn't saying that Deborah herself was a problem, but saying that she was revealing the problems among the people. She revealed a wider societal problem of the blokes being slack, but she herself was a wonderful, faithful example. Deborah was the spiritual mother that they needed to nurture their faith and encourage them to look to the Lord for deliverance. But before we look to the Lord for deliverance, there's more problems in Judges 5 verse 8. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. I'm using the ESV on this verse. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? You see, the people had ditched God. They had chosen other gods. And what's the response to that? What's the result of that? then war was in the gates. They ditched God and they got themselves into a bad way. When the people ditched the Elohim for other Elohim, then things went downhill. And it was like having 40,000 men and none of them ready to wield a sword or a spear. They were defenseless. But then the the song turns, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. A great many people still, despite the state of affairs, they heard the call, they took up arms. 
They were initially holding back, but then they came forward. Thank the Lord. And so Deborah addresses all people in her song here from verse 10, coming to tell them to proclaim the Lord's victory. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets, you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villages in Israel. And the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. So here we have, um, just if I could modernize the text to help us get the picture of what's going on. Um, You who drive your $100,000 land cruisers with your uh, wonderful interiors, and you who drive your Hyundais and Kias down the road, consider what God has telling you. Consider the, what the, the music you hear, the bands that play in the public theatre. She's inviting people, both rich and poor, the, the average person and the nobles, is inviting them all to consider what she's inviting them all to consider how God had worked through regular people to save their country. Now, just as Israel was in a woeful state, I'm sure we can see the woeful state of our own time. And in particular, we might be thinking about the woeful state of the church around this country. And I know this because it's very easy for us after church to get into conversations about all the ills around the world. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those conversations, but I am saying that we're aware of the, we're aware that it's a woeful state and we need God to act, to look to Him. No matter what is going on in the spiritual realm, no matter what is going on around us, The regular people of God are called forth to walk faithfully with him, to be loyal to him, to be ready to wade into battle for him, and God will work through his regular people to achieve victory. Yes, we can look out and we can see this is wrong and this is wrong and these policies and that thing, but you should walk loyally and faithfully. And as you walk loyally and faithfully with the Lord, you will be an antidote to the chaos that goes on around us. So walk with the Lord, despite the woeful state around you. The Lord's people prepare for battle. The Lord's people prepare for battle. In the next section from verse 12, God's people are coming forth and they answer the battle summons. Wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, Barak. Take captive your captive son of Abinoam. The remnant of the nobles come down. The people of the Lord come down to me against the mighty. God's people come together for battle. The time is now. Get up, get going. You can imagine it now, uh, you know, like the the scene in a a war movie where the guys are in camp and they're waiting for the battle because you never quite know when it's going to come. And it's as though somebody is running through the camp And kicking everybody out of bed saying, now's the time, let's go. Everybody, up, Deborah, time to go. Barak, let's get going. And so all of God's people come together. The clans join in, primarily Zebulun and Naphtali, as we read last week. And a whole bunch of other clans join in. And I'm not going to read them all, but basically there's a whole collection 
there's a whole cohort of people who come from the other clans. But there are some obvious people missing. There's some, a bunch of the clans come together to take on the God's enemies, but some of them don't show up. In verses 15 and 16, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, set under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. So, while the people of God are gathering to face off against God's enemies, while many of the tribes have sent warriors down to face the, the, the difficulty, Reuben's, we're not quite sure if now's the right time, you know? We're just, we just want to think and pray about this a bit more. They're just holding off. Just sitting back. We'll see how things play out. You know, cowardice and shirking is not always obvious. It's obvious when the guy uh, legs it from battle because he's afraid of the enemy. That's pretty obvious. It's much less obvious when it's the guy who says he's on board but then doesn't act. The guy who makes it look like he's on the right team on the outside makes a big song and dance about doing the right thing, but who actually never steps up to the crease to take a swing. And that's what we see in Reuben and Dan and a few other of the tribes. They, they didn't come down. They didn't join in. They didn't step up. And it's an indictment against them that the other tribes came forward, but they didn't. The Lord's people prepared for battle. And I would encourage you to prepare for the battle, the spiritual battles that you might face. Don't just hold off and ponder the deep things. It's not like, it's not like they were saying Reuben shouldn't have thought about what they were doing. But the thing is that they were just off busy. They were having deep discussions and considering and it meant that they actually didn't achieve anything. So, don't cover up your disobedience with a spiritual sheen. Be authentic with God and with one another, if I could use a cliche. Be authentic, say it how it is, step up to the crease and take a swing under God. Get into the fray. The Lord makes the battle. The Lord makes the battle in our next section. We're getting down to the crux of it. In verse 19, the kings came. They fought the kings of Canaan. Sorry, the kings of Canaan fought at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The kings of Canaan, they're coming out to fight. As we said, this, uh, this uh, depressing force was, their capital city was Hazor, and Sisera was the leader of their army. But they would have had other kings under, like, a, I can't think of the word, the, the, the kings that serve other kings. Um, and so, 
they, they came out to fight, and there would have been other guys who potentially would have been kings of their own cities and areas who were worried about the Israelite threat, and so they joined in as allies. But they came out to fight, but they didn't win. They didn't take home any plunder. And it's even as though creation was fighting against them. The stars of heaven are fighting against them. But in the, in the Bible, the stars are often connected with, this, with the, the host of heaven, the spiritual beings at God's command. And so Deborah is basically saying, look, the host of heaven was set against them. They fought from their courses to support God's people. So that's the kind of the spiritual side of it. But what's happening down here on the ground? Well, the river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then a hundred horses, hooves galloping, go his mighty steeds. So you remember before how we said that uh, the, the military might of this army was in their 900 chariots? And so this was superior military technology, and they were just going to mow down the Israelite infantry who didn't have this kind of technology. But remember also that God had sent Barak up here to this particular area to take on the battle. And remember also that as God came, the rain came. And so what we end up here is with these chariots who are crippled by the mud. So God has taken what was their strength and turned it into their weakness. Now their horses can't get purchased, their wheels are choked up with mud, and they are sitting ducks as the Israelites come upon them. And so it's almost as though the river itself is fighting with his hundred steeds, then a hundred, sorry, then thundered, the horses' hooves galloping, galloping goes mighty steeds of the river Kishon as it swept down and swept them away. The chariots are disabled in the mud. And this, of course, is why Sisera, in the previous chapter, has to get off his chariot to run away because his chariot is crippled. And once again, as I said before, Baal, the storm god, is not the one providing the victory here. The storm is coming from the Lord's hand. But as we saw before, not all of the people came to the battle. I don't know, we don't know anything about this, this Miroz, whether it was a people group or a city, but it's something. It's a place or a group of people who are cursed because they didn't come to join in. They weren't loyal, they weren't faithful to the Lord. Curse Miroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Their failure, their disloyalty earns them a curse. So the Lord has, has made battle against the enemies, and God has made battle against our enemies, all of our enemies, including our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. When we look around us, we might not think of that. We might be thinking about our geopolitical powers and their rising might. We might be thinking about, um, we might be thinking about issues in institutions, and we might be thinking about other things that look like their problems, but... Our greatest enemies are the sin. Our greatest enemies include death and Satan. But the good news is that the Lord has been on the march. And the Lord has made battle against Satan, sin and death. 
The Lord has come to deliver his people from these tyrants. But the Lord uses unlikely victors. The Lord uses unlikely victors like Jael. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for the nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Here we have the most blessed Jael. Most blessed. And if it wasn't clear that she was been to be uh, held up as a model, as an example, she's called the most blessed of tent-dwelling women, as in of the nomadic peoples who travelled around and lived in tents. They're saying, Jael, she is the most blessed. She deserves praise for her work. Now, as we kind of touched on last week, we kind of feel uncomfortable a little bit with what Jael did, given the fact that um, she had kind of assured him of safety, and uh, we know that that particular group of Kenites was in some kind of covenant allyship with this army, these enemies of God. Yet her actions are vindicated because she was demonstrating her loyalty to God's people and by extension to God. Even though she had broken the covenant, even though she had misled Sisera, she was being loyal to the Lord. And we too might find ourselves in similar situations like that as we make our way through life. Sometimes we end up trapped in agreements. Uh, We said, made promises to somebody or we had entered into a contract or a covenant with somebody who hated God. And now we should always abide by our word, except when it comes into, into conflict with obeying God. We should always abide by our word. Our word sh- we should mean what we say. Our yes should be yes, our no should be no. But if it comes down to a choice between obeying God, being loyal to God, or being loyal to God's enemies, we have to choose being loyal to God. And, and that's what JL did. We're not given real insight into how close she was. Like if you think of a converted or an unconverted person, we haven't really got those categories here. We don't know if she is an Israelite or if she um, was a regular worshipper of the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim. But all we know here is in this instance, she acts for the sake of the Lord's people. She tricked him into thinking he was safe. He asked for water. She gave him milk. So great, that's one up. This is good. I'm safe. But Sisera was not safe because Jael had other intentions. In the, in the passage before, it was already quite kind of confronting and uh, um, the description was enough. But here we're going to sing about what she did. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he, he sank, there he fell dead. This reminded me here where it says, her hand reached for the tent peg. If you remember from Proverbs 31, the description of the, uh, the, the ideal wise wife, she's, she talks about her hands reached for the spindle. And here we have a, something somewhat different going on. Her hand reaches... For the tent peg. 
And she courageously triumphs over Sisera. And of course, this is a poetic retelling. He didn't literally fall or sank at her feet because he was already lying on the ground. But there's this poetry of him, him being at her feet, him being, um, him being brought low by her. She acted in faithfulness to God, and she is the one who has victory. And it's as though she's crushed the head of God's enemies. And hang on a sec, I think I've read something about that before. In, in Genesis, even when God was bringing his curse on the peoples, on, on, on Adam and Eve for their disobedience, he gave this tiny little pinprick of hope. But your seed shall crush the serpent's head, he said to Eve. And he, this is not Jael's seed, but this, her, her, like her, her children, but this is still Jael crushing the head of God's enemies. She was a kind of a forerunner of another one, a Mary, most blessed among women, the unlikely mother of God, so to speak. Mary, the one who would give birth to the Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent. God uses unlikely victors. A carpenter's, a carpenter from Nazareth, the backwater of a country that was oppressed by the Romans. Yet he was the one who rose up in triumph and victory over our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He disarmed them. He has victory over them. He's put them to open shame. Satan is crushed in and through the work of Jesus Christ. His death for sin, his burial, and his resurrection triumphing over death. Satan thought that he was getting the upper hand when he took out Jesus, Son of God, and yet he played into God's hand and made atonement for sin. This is God's victory through an unlikely, seemingly unlikely character. Just like Jael was the unlikely victor over a great warrior, Sisera, who led an army. And so, the Lord's enemy is mocked. The Lord's enemy is mocked. In contrast to the blessed Jael, another woman arrives on the scene. Here is this kind of imagined story about Sisera's mum. And when I say imagined, I don't mean as in like it was fake. I mean as in like the Deborah is, in, is kind of anticipating what it would be like at, at Sisera's house while they're down there on the battlefield. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? You can see in your mind's eye the terrible scene of a concerned mother. But before we're too quick to sympathize with her, we remember that she's the mother of a general in a tyrannical army. It's as though you know, Hitler's mum was saying, When's my son going to come visit me? all the while not realizing that he has taken his own life in a bunker somewhere. He's already bitten the dust. And so we can empathize with the motherly side of things, but we're still glad that the bad guy's dead. The scene continues. The wisest of her ladies answer, so she's obviously some kind of noble, she's got ladies in waiting. Her, the wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a woman or two for each man, colourful garments as plunder for Sisera, colourful garments embroidered, 
highly embroidered garments for my neck, all this as plunder. So she's consoling herself. He's taking a long time because obviously they won the battle and obviously they're just taking so long to sort through all the piles and piles of loot. They've got it. It's just taken them a while. I've got mountains of it to split up. And so that's what's taking them so long. It's like a wife of a fisherman wondering if the reason he's coming home late is because he's so busy catching all the fish. But we really, you know, perhaps he's really busy descaling all the fish that he's caught. No, no, he's coming home late because he's desperately trying to maybe catch one. But here, this, this picture is a mockery of Sisera's family. They're going to... They're, they're wondering, they're kind of anticipating, oh, they've got so much plunder. And the NIV really makes this polite here. It, it's literally a womb or two for each man. It's crudely reducing the women of God's people to sexual objects for God's enemies to enslave. They're saying, they're imagining Sisera's mother consoling herself with the fact that they're enslaving Israelite women. Yet the irony here, of course, is that this is a mockery. This is not the case. It's the complete opposite. They have all died. The reason they're late is not because they're dividing up the plunder. They're never coming back. And so Deborah is mocking the enemy here. They're mocking. They're taunting them. And that's why then she follows with these verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength and the land had peace for 40 years. This is the, the closing refrain. May all your enemies perish, Lord. I wonder if you would feel comfortable joining in that refrain. If not, then there might be some questions that we need to ask about why not. But we want to see God's justice prevail. We want to see God on the throne. And so we want all of God's enemies to bite the dust. Now, we do know that, that all of us, naturally, in our own selves, would stand as enemies against God. None of us have any right to come to God and say, oh, look, I'm on your side. Because when God looks back at the course of our life, He says, look at all this stuff that you did that was open rebellion. You can't be on my side. But as we said before, Jesus came, the unlikely victor, who made a way for God's enemies to become His friends. May all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Imagine that, that God would make those who would be opposed to him his friends. And he did that through Jesus Christ. And so there is the hope that we pray for those. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray for those who stand opposed to God, that God would make them his friends. But if they would not, if he would not, then they still remain his enemies and they receive justice at God's hand. But you see what happens when God brings justice? Do you see what happens when God brings victory? Then the land had peace for 40 years. And that's what's happened for us. The peace has come. We're not seeing the fullness of it yet, but the peace has come through the gospel, the gospel of peace, the good news of peace that has come, that the battle that is waged across the ages between God and all those who would try to set themselves up as God, the enemies of God, have been overthrown in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The, the, the critical blow has been landed, and all of God's enemies are on the run. And so we stand back and we join with the, with the Scriptures and we say, 
Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? They have none because Jesus Christ has disarmed them. And so we join, we join our Lord and we rest in him. We go out with him. We loyally go with him and we remain faithful to him. We join him in his victory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has won the victory, that, the de- that death has no sting, that grave has no victory. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who is the unlikely saviour, the, the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. And we thank you, Lord, for the example of those faithful women of old in Deborah and in Jael and in the late to the party barrack. We thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that we might follow after them in, in their example of faithfulness. Not, not, uh, not because we want to be like them, but because we want to be faithful to you but because we want to be made like you, because we want to join you in your victory. We thank you, Lord, that you have come and saved your people and redeemed them. And we praise you and extol um, your virtue. We, We praise your holy name in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.